Well, this morning as we come back to the Word of the Lord, our text is going to be from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, if you would turn there in your Bibles, you'll find that on page 1171 in the Pew Bible there in front of you, 1171, as we come to Ephesians 4. Now, last week we took a break from Hebrews to discuss the idea of comfort. We did this because of a need for this within our own church family, but it, be, it comes at a most needful time in light of the events yesterday in Virginia. Specifically, last week we looked at the comfort in Christ. We started by addressing the things in life which, which destroy our comfort. Things like fear, anxiety, worry, confusion, division. These are not the things of Christ. These are not the things of the Lord, and they are therefore not to be the things that are of his body and his church and of us, his children. Each of these conditions were evidenced through the disciples, as we saw last week in Matthew chapters 4 to 5. We saw that in each of the four miracles we looked at, that the disciples and others around exhibited great fear. The disciples were afraid as the storm rose on the waters as they crossed the Sea of Galilee. And then even more afraid after the Lord calmed them and they recognized that the power within the boat was yet greater than the power outside the boat. We saw yet more fear occur as they arrived on land. And the moment immediately, as Mark tells us in Mark 5, immediately as the Lord's foot hit the beach and hit the sand, the demoniac ran up. This one who would not be bound and who broke shackles and chains and gashed himself with rocks and screamed all night long amongst the tombs and brought great fear, great confusion, great disturbance. We saw that as Jesus went to heal Jairus' daughter and on the way, making time for her, Jairus in great fear because of his little daughter about to pass, that the woman with the 12-year-old flow of blood interrupted Jesus amidst that. And she had great fear. For 12 years she had suffered, given all the money that she had to doctors with no help whatsoever. And then... As Jesus goes on, the fear yet continues as the man came up from Jairus' house to tell him that his sweet daughter had died. And the fear manifests and multiplies. But then we saw the comfort that exists in Christ in every circumstance because of his power, because of his authority, his assurance that we need not fear Jesus showed in every one of those miracles his authority and power over a different realm of nature. Over the, the miracles over the created realm in the water. The miracle over the spiritual realm as he, as he removed the demoniac, the legion from the man. His power over physical life as he healed the woman. And his power even over death. And his authority in all these things brought such great confidence, restored peace, and removed the fear. And that's what we saw in John 14 as we concluded that the Lord, as he told his disciples after the Last Supper, that he was dying and that he was leaving, and they did not understand it, and he said, it's okay. What I would ask from you is obedience. What I would ask from you is to believe what I have told you and to stay in line with my word, to follow in step with what I have shown you that there needs be no fear, that you can have, as we've just sung, blessed assurance in me, because in me you have seen the Father. And they did not even understand that and asked him further how that could be. And he said, if you do not believe in me, believe in the works that you have seen, those miracles that we had talked about, and that all of these brought peace. And that is so desperately needed in our lives and in our world today. This was our first of the two-part series on comfort, the comfort of Christ. Our primary comfort is and always will be in Christ. But there's another place from which we draw comfort. And this takes us to our second part and today's title, Comfort in the Church. Comfort in the Church. 
take a look with me in Ephesians chapter 4 as I read the first few verses and we'll talk about those. As with last week, we'll be moving through many texts, so we'll ask you to be ready to, to turn to a few different locations. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Comfort in the church. Last week when we closed our service in our benediction, I read for you Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, the verses immediately prior to the verses that I just read. It's these verses that we see the sources of our comfort, namely both the source of our comfort in Christ and in the church. Look at them briefly with me. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. These verses very interestingly reference the Trinity. It's an important consideration and one we'll want to keep in mind. We see at the beginning of verse 20, it says, Now to him. That him that's being referenced is God the Father. We see that at the end of verse 19, God is the referent that's there. And throughout verses 14 to 19, of Ephesians chapter 3, God is the focus of that discussion. That is God the Father specifically. As we look further, we see that it also references the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 20, where it says the power that works within us. That is an indirect reference to the Spirit of God, which dwells in the believer. So we have Father and Spirit. And then in verse 21, it mentions Jesus. Thus we have a full Trinitarian reference. But notice also in verse 21, it mentions the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. There is a linking of the church and Jesus Christ. And clearly there should be. Ephesians 1.22 makes a similar connection where it says in the first chapter and 22nd verse of this book of Ephesians. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. That is, he, God the Father, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus Christ, feet and gave him, Jesus Christ, as head over all things to the church. As the church operates, and as we read in Romans 13, there is an element of authority in all things. And God has established that authority, and the authority in the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the connection of the comfort that comes from those is unmistakable. Even in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, the wonderful text on marriage that so often we speak about. Ephesians 5, 23 emphasizes the connection of Christ in the church and the authority that exists there for the way that husbands and wives are to interact. Ephesians 5.23, speaking specifically of husbands, says that for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. There is a headship, and in that headship is the savior of the church. What comfort is that? What comfort to know that we have a Savior that has given all for us. And there is a picture of a body that's conveyed. That, that body language is always a reference to the church. We'll see much, much more of it later on this morning. The church here that's being spoken about and that we'll speak about throughout our day today is the church universal. 
you need to understand that in Scripture, oftentimes there are two different references for the church. There is the local body of believers, which we at Christ Fellowship are, and then there is the church universal, which is all of the believers of all times. In Ephesians, he is speaking about all of the believers of all times as he references the church. And therein, Christ's headship extends over all true churches of God. It's a very important thing for us to recognize. So the close relationship of Jesus and the church helps us understand why there is much comfort both in Christ and in Christ's church. Now Ephesians 4 becomes the beginning of this new section of the book. The book of Ephesians, six chapters long, is broken directly in half. The first three chapters deal with doctrine, primarily. The second three chapters deal primarily with practice. There's two words that sound like big theological words that are really important for us to understand. We call those first three chapters of doctrine orthodoxy. That which is right, that which is true, that which conveys all that is revealed about God in what it says. Then there is the second half, practice, which we call orthopraxy. That is right living, right acting. And it is every bit as important, for it does no good to have right doctrine and not have right action. So the idea of orthodoxy and orthopraxy are critically linked. And those are words that we ought to know because they convey more than just practice. They, can, they convey a practice that is covered by holiness and righteousness. Well, that leads us, with that understanding, to our first point, which is comfort in unity. Comfort in unity. Verse 1 of chapter 4 begins with this idea of practice where we're commanded to walk. We all know what walking looks like. We do it all day long. I walked up here. You'll walk out at the end of the service. But that's not what's being spoken about here, is it? No, he's talking about the manner in which we live. Our lives look like such and such. This is how we walk. So he's telling us that our walk is to be one that is worthy of your calling. What does worthy look like? It means something that is fitting. Well, uh, let's say that some of, of you young adults were invited to a presidential inauguration. And it happened to be over in Pensacola. And you decided, well, you know, if we're going to be over in Pensacola for the day, we just as well hit the beach because it's a beautiful day. So you put on a bathing suit and whatever else, some flip-flops to go to the beach. But you probably wouldn't wear those to the presidential inauguration. You'd dress up a little bit because that would be what would be worthy. That's what would be expected. So this, when he calls us to a worthy walk, it's what's expected. It is what is reasonable. In line with what? He tells us in verse 1, in line with our calling. In line with our calling. That is that we have been called by Christ. We have been called out of the world. Called out of darkness into light. Called to live differently. Called to reflect Jesus Christ. Called to live lives of obedience to God's word. That's the walk that he's speaking about. And then in verse 2, he tells us exactly how that worthy walk per our calling is to look. It is one that is to be with humility. One that is to be with gentleness. We cannot be prideful and arrogant as we walk in line with the Lord. Those simply are, are, are not proper reflections of how our Lord lived. He was in no way prideful. Never was there an, ar an arrogance about him. No, rather there was a gentleness. A gentleness that indicated an element of, of peace and of compassion. And he continues in verse 2. He says, it's tolerance for one another in love. Here is where the idea of comfort in the church begins. Because it is the comfort the tolerance for one another. Well, who are those one another's? They are one another in the church. They are the other believers. They are those who are to be loved in the same way from verse 1. It is those that are called out, the ecclesia, those, those that are the pure of the church. Now, there are unbelievers in every church, some knowingly and some unknowingly. That's just the way it has always been and the way it will always be. 
but as a whole, the church is not to go out and to fill itself with unbelievers. We're not to go out to the streets and find anybody we can and drag them kicking and screaming into church. That's not what church is about. Yes, we do want to bring people in. Yes, we do want to invite people to come, but we want them to understand what happens here. And if they do not get saved, this ought to be a place where they pretty quickly become, become uncomfortable. Because as we talk about sin and as we talk about repentance and confession and all of the things that are required of a believer, if you're not one, that ought to feel a little hard to sit. Might make you a little squirmy in your seat like a little one who is just tired of sitting and listening to the preacher after 30 minutes. He's ready to go. Well, that's exactly the idea that comes forward to us because it is those who are called, those who are the church to whom this tolerance and love is to be shown. This is where the idea of comfort comes from. I mean, what is tolerance in love? It is putting up with, it is bearing with, it is listening to, it is accepting, it is exercising self-restraint. Tolerance in love has the same connotation as Philippians 2.3. It says there in that wonderful text in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Notice it's always considering the needs of others. It is humility. It's putting others above ourselves. It is not exalting ourselves. It is not creating contentions. It is not creating divisions and strife. It is seeking the well-being of others at all times and at all costs. Never exalting your own self-serving perspective over the church or certainly not above the others in it. If this tolerance and love doesn't exist, then the comfort in the church cannot exist. If there's not love in each relationship, then there is no unity because there is division, because there is no tolerance but when this self-abasing love and consideration exists, it flows between members of the church and it provides great comfort and great love and great unity because that is the picture that's painted of Christ. And as this happens, it brings that sense of comfort, the sense of acceptance when you know that those around you, that they support you, that they love you, that they are here to bring you comfort. Verse three is where the comfort in unity is directly referenced. We've seen the idea of comfort in verses 1 and 2. Now in verse 3, it further supports this in the unity and peace which are to exist in the church, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When there is strife, when there is dissension and contention, there is no peace because it removes comfort. But when this unity and peace exist in the church, there is the comfort, and this is the comfort in the church. John MacArthur writes, The Spirit bestowed oneness of all true believers has created a bond of peace. The spiritual cord that surrounds and binds God's holy people together, this bond is love, end quote. What a beautiful picture for us. The same idea that we see in Scripture in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14. Colossians 3, 14 reads, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What a wonderful picture. Let me reread that for you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Notice the unity is a bond. It is, it is love that wraps around us. And when there is unity and discord, there is no love. It cannot be love because there's no bond there. The unity of the Spirit is a primary element of the comfort of the church. There is one Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit pervading those who are truly members of Christ's body. And therein there is a unity and a love that exists in each of those. It's an overarching principle in the church. We yield to one another because of the Spirit. This is the manner in which the church functions, and it's the manner in which the church leadership must function. There is a, a unity that exists there. 
It, it functions in a way in which all recognize the oneness of the Spirit that is moving. This is the principle behind unanimity by which our church functions and is so vital that all decisions are made by one voice. Because there is one spirit, there are not many spirits bringing many different discussions. So in matters of preference, there is one voice that must speak. And even at some point, there's a time where the one who has a differing position must yield. So critical to understand. Because this is what builds unanimity. This is what brings forth the idea of the unity of love. Well, the unity of the Holy Spirit establishes the comfort in unity. And that comfort in unity has two components in our next verses. These two components really make up our two subpoints, if you will, as we move through the structure of our sermon. Two components that make up the comfort in unity. And this first subpoint is the unity in design. Unity in design in verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7 reveal this beautiful design of unity. Look at them again with me, beginning in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice again the prominent elements of the Trinity. We saw the Trinity at the close of chapter 3 the end of the doctrinal section, now the Trinity is again described at the beginning of the practical section. But not so as to make a distinction between the elements, as to say, okay, this is the Father's job, this is the Son's job, this is the Spirit's job, but to show a unity amongst them. Notice how each verse highlights one of these elements of the Trinity. Verse 4 references the Holy Spirit. And here is the connection of the church, the body who have the same hope in their calling. That calling which we've spoken about, the effectual call of the believers, that call which no man can ultimately resist. And the hope of that calling is the hope of heaven. It's the hope that we've sung about just earlier in these wonderful hymns that just lift our hearts to recognize that that's what awaits the true believer. What great comfort is in this? Could we imagine more comfort, beloved, than this? We're called and saved by no action and no merit of our own. It is a gift wholly outside of ourselves, exclusively of God. And we are promised a blissful and beautiful eternity in heaven. How can one get more comfort than this? You can't... You can't lose what you did not gain and you can't give away that which was given to you at no fault or cost or requirement of your own. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, the, Lord, the psalmist says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What fear can we have with Christ? We need have no fear. God's spirit binds us. It bonds us in the church, which is the source of perfect comfort. Verse 5 then highlights the Son of God, the Lord. Through Christ there is faith. The belief that he alone is the way of salvation. John 14, 6 tells us where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. The only means by which we will get to the Father, we will get to heaven, is through a belief in Christ, through obedience to his word. And through Christ, there is also one baptism, as verse 5 tells us. Our baptism is our identification with Christ. It is our public one-time profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. We do not get rebaptized every time we fall short or every time we sin. Baptism is the one-time act that we continue to reflect upon, continue to proclaim, continue to live in light of the glory by which God gave us the strength to stand in those waters and to profess to his church that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I will live in obedience to the truth of his word. What peace, what comfort come in these and in Christ. And then verse 6 completes the Trinitarian discussion with the Father, the one who is Father of all mankind. 
And all mankind originates from him. He is over all. There is none superior to God. As Isaiah 46, 9 confirms for us. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 46, 9, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And he is through all and in all. God is everywhere. God is in everything. This is the fabulous doctrine of omnipresence. That there is never a place where we can go where we are apart from God. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? If I go to the depths of the deepest water, behold, you are there. If I go even to Sheol, Lord, you are there. What a wonderful comfort. What a wonderful encouragement. This incredible comfort comes through the church and it comes through the Trinity. This is this vital element of the unity of design. The perfect design of Father, Son, and Spirit by which salvation and faith are linked together in a way that we cannot perfectly explain, but it's not for us to explain. It is for us to understand. It is for us to look at and to marvel. It's the most breathtaking design. Who could fathom such an incredible intricacy and perfect harmony? Well, only God. If God could come up with this beautiful plan, what peace and comfort does that give us as to his perfect sovereign control? Each member of the Trinity working in perfect harmony with never a point of dissension, always carrying forth the perfect plan and will of God, then that idea and that ideal is to be conveyed into the church. That is the unity of design and an incredibly beautiful picture for us to recognize such tremendous comfort. But there is one more verse in verse 7 where we read, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts of God, well, well what are these? Well, they're further described down in verses 11 to 12. They are the spiritual gifts of God that he's talking about. And this leads us to our second sub-point of the comfort in unity. We had unity of design first, and now the second sub-point is unity of service. Unity of service. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, page 1149, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 12 takes us to uh, the, this idea of spiritual gifts in, in really its fullest revelation. There are four primary places in the Bible where spiritual gifts are spoken about. In our text, we just left Ephesians 4 and verses 11 to 12. We see it also in Romans chapter 12 and verses 6 to 8. Romans 12, 6 to 8. They're also in 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11, if you want to do a study and look into those nuances of the spiritual gifts. That's where you'll find those. But the largest section is in 1 Corinthians 12. Actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14 focuses on spiritual gifts. And many components are revealed in that text. We're going to overview just a few of these verses of chapter 12 as we consider the unity of service. Verse 1 introduces the topic of gifts where it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So Paul brings his greatest dissertation as to spiritual gifts beginning here. And as I mentioned, it continues all the way through the 14th chapter. Now, if you want to know more about spiritual gifts, if you want to understand the full implications of those gifts which have ceased the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts, and those that yet continue, I would recommend a book to you called Understanding Spiritual Gifts. Understanding Spiritual Gifts. It's by Robert Thomas, and you can find it on Amazon. If you plug in Understanding Spiritual Gifts and you get a Bible study, that's not the one. You need to plug in also uh, Robert Thomas, and you will get the book version that talks about all of this. And it's a, a great study. We, we won't at this time, obviously, go through that depth. But the concept of unity of service arises really in verse 4. So look at verse 4 with me of 1 Corinthians 12. 
Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So as we notice these, there's two things that we want to focus on as we do an overview of these verses. First, once again, the Trinity appears. The importance of recognizing God's design and God's perfection just keeps coming back because it's our pattern. And I guess we need reminded sometimes of things because maybe we don't remember as well as we might. So it continues to be brought before us. Also, notice the word varieties as we move through these verses. It occurs in each of the first three. And it's an important connection. Verse 4 says, each gift from the Spirit is, results in a variety of gifts. That is, various gifts that come forward because of the Spirit of God. Verse 5 says there are varieties of ministries in which these gifts are used, but all for the same Lord. That is all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Spirit and Son described. Verse 6 says there are a variety of effects of these spiritual gifts. But God is orchestrating all of them. Again, we have our Trinity designed, reaffirmed for us, and he's showing us that as the spiritual gifts are poured into our lives, that we are to use them one for another for the building up of the church. And that they have various ways that they are given. Each of us have different gifts. There are various ministries in which those gifts are used. We ought to be serving in all of the different areas of the ministries of this church. And then there are a variety of effects which God brings about. Sometimes there is great fruit that comes from the use of our gifts. Sometimes not. Wonderful missionaries that have served their whole lives in far-off lands and died assuming that they had no converts, only to find out a generation or two later that many tribes have come to know Christ as a result of this work, who thought his life was a failure. We don't understand the effects, but God brings the victory. But notice the purpose in verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's for the common good. That is for the service to the church. This is the unity of service. We are given gifts for the good of the whole body, for the good of the whole church. The varied gifts, the varied ministries, the varied effects are all for the common good, all for the service to this body. And that is the unity of service. That is where the body grows. Notice further that each person is given that gift in verse 7. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are given a spiritual gift at that very moment of conversion. Some may receive more than one gift, but all are given a gift at conversion. And at that time, you are fully indwelt with the Spirit of God. There is no second blessing. There is no additional filling. You get all of God when you become a believer. And at that time, you are given a gift, and that gift is for the service of the church. Verse 11 further emphasizes the same point. Look down at verse 11 with me. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. This is the sixth time in 1 Corinthians that we've been told that the Spirit gives gifts. Happened in verse 4, happened twice in verse 8, happens twice in verse 9, and here again in verse 11. What does that mean? When we see something once in the Bible, we pay attention. When we see it repeatedly, there's more emphasis. When we see it six times, we really pay attention. The meaning of the Spirit giving us gifts is we don't go seeking them. I'm not going to go grab you and you and you, and I'm not going to take you out back, and we're going to learn how to speak in tongues. Because that's not coming from the Spirit of God, is it? That's you pursuing it. That's a man giving it to you. That is contrary to God's Word in this point. The gifts come from the Spirit. Man can't give them to us. Look at the way this continues to flesh out in verse 12 and beyond. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, for all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. 
so also is Christ. Here is our idea of unity brought forward. The one body of many members repeats this two times in one verse so that we don't miss it. We all understand this illustration of a body, don't we? I have been, and I perhaps I've told you before, that I, I struggle a great deal with a, a very uh, weak and insensitive set of toes. And when I stub one, I'm known to yowl like cats fighting. My children and my wife laugh when they hear it, and they go, oh, call 911, Dad stubbed his toe again. But when I stub my toe, there is no part of my body that doesn't know it. My ears know it, my hair knows it, everything knows it. And so it is in the body of Christ. We are all one body. We are all integral. We are all functioning together. So he repeats the unity of each member in the body and connects that with Christ. Because here with the connection of Christ is our connection to comfort. Verses 13 continue the unity of service. As they say, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. The, the one baptism repeated. That we are, that there are no nationalities. How often do we stop and think about that? How important is that in light of the circumstances from yesterday? There are no nationalities. There, there, are, there are no races. We are, we are one group. We are all from one family. We are all from Noah. yes. We may look differently, but we have been changing for thousands of years. But we are from one family. This, this idea of race, this idea of bigotry, this idea of hatred, it is totally contrary to God and his word. There is to be none of that. No races, no segregation. Verse 25 brings our discussion a step further where he takes us, and says, so that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. The point of the unity of the service is that there is no division, literally no schisms, no factions. When these occur, it's a dishonor to the Lord, to, to the Spirit, and to God the Father. And this is the same thing we saw back in Ephesians 4, only now in a negative perspective. In the church, there is no room for schisms, no room for factions, because there's rather to be care for one another. And what does this care reveal? It reveals comfort. This comfort is like a mother going to her crying baby. The caring touch of that mother on that crying child instantly brings peace, instantly brings relief. It's the care that exists in the unity of the church. And it results in the comfort in the church. That is, each member in harmony to the body so wonderfully cares for one another. It's the same comfort Paul spoke of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, where he said, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. What a beautiful picture of the missionaries caring for that beloved flock in Thessalonica. What an incredible understanding. And in like fashion, our comfort in unity is further solidified. A unity of design in which there is perfect harmony of function and a unity of service in which each member is caring for one another through the use of their gifts. It brings great comfort because we see God's perfect design. His planned execution of that design through the church, through the gifting of the church, just like the distinctions in the Trinity, all working together in harmony. Well, having the, established the comfort in unity, we go to our second point, the comfort in interrelation. The comfort in interrelation. And for this, I'd ask you to turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, page 1089 in the Pew Bibles there. Acts chapter 2 is very familiar with us. It begins with Pentecost. That is the first time that the Holy Spirit indwelt permanently the members of the church. Appropriate connection, don't you think? We've just been talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and here we are seeing the first indwelling of the Spirit as it came permanently, particularly to the apostles. And what are they doing? 
they're immediately expressing these gifts. These ecstatic gifts are immediately being used. They're not waiting. They're not thinking, well, let's see what this is all about. No, they are immediately bringing to bear the gifts that God has given them through the Spirit. So this is the the same theme of 1 Corinthians 12. Again, right in the same ballpark. And then we move to Peter's first great sermon. And it is absolutely incredible as he preaches the truth to them. And what happens when we get to verse 37 at the end of Peter's sermon? Look there in Acts 2 and verse 37 with me. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. As he goes through this, as they hear this sermon, they are struck. What are we going to do? Peter, how do we respond to this word? And he tells them, repent, be baptized, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, receive his gift, and, and then use that gift as we've just discussed. Because the promise is for you and your children. Those far off, beloved, that is, that is us. That is those far off in the future and even those beyond until the Lord returns. And he says, be saved from this perverse generation. We must recognize that there is a need for salvation. There is a need to understand we have to be separate from the world. If we live according to the world, if our lives don't look any different than the world around us, then are we really saved? Are we still living in the muck and in the mire of all the world about? Are we still wallowing around but then simply going to church? That's not the way God would call us to live. No, he would call us to change, to abandon that. The scripture says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Are you new? Is the power of God's spirit pulsing through your body? Do you recognize those old things that have to go away? I can't have any more of that. I can't have any more of that filthy talk. I can't have any more of that coarse jesting. I can't have any more of that berating others inappropriately. I need to be different. I need to live in light of the power of the Spirit of God that has indwelt me. And I am different because of it. Verse 41 says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Well, verse 42 is where our comfort of inner relation really takes off. Look at verse 42 with me. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There are five aspects of comfort in verse 42 and beyond. That is the five areas where the comfort in the church is evidenced. The first is in the teaching and preaching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was the revealed truth of the word of God. God is bringing his word to the apostles, and they are teaching, and they are preaching, and proclaiming the truth of Christ. And what's the church doing? They are continually devoted to pursuing that teaching. What's that word mean? Those words, plural, actually, continually devoted. Whenever the teaching is going on, they were there. Because there was great comfort in hearing a word from the Lord. The world in which they lived was a crooked and perverse generation. There was immorality of every stripe. Violence and hatred. An ocean of pollution in every element of their culture and society. Sound familiar? So whenever the word was preached, they were there. This is what Hebrews 10.25 is all about. Not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
when the world around you is so vile that you are daily stained by what you see and by what you hear, then the teaching of the Word of God is like a comforting shower after a day of dirt and sweat. So they are constantly devoting themselves to the teaching. Secondly, they're also continually devoting themselves to fellowship, to spending time together, rejoicing in their common salvation. Paul gives us a description of what this is, fellowship looks like, in Philippians 2 and verses 1 and 2. Philippians 2, beginning in 1, says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is what fellowship looks like. It looks like encouragement in Christ. It looks like consolation of love. It looks like affection and compassion. It looks like being of the same mind, maintaining that same love and united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I see no room for division in that because that is comfort, that is unity, that is fellowship. Are these the elements of our fellowship, beloved? They must be. And they were continually about this fellowship. We understand the comfort that exists in each of those terms. And next, they were devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. They were taking their meals together. These were the love feasts that they were having. Oftentimes, they were sharing these meals together and then partaking of communion. It's exactly where the idea came that we would have on some of our fifth Sundays the celebration of the Lord's table with our meal. But even all of those fifth Sundays where we join together as a body to break bread together, to enjoy fellowship, to play a little kickball water ball out in the grass, you know, whatever it might be, these are the times where we join and where God is moving because there is this sweet fellowship of sharing a meal. And a wonderful experience of that. Just think back to the last time you were in another home of a brother or sister in Christ and sharing a meal. Wasn't it the sweetest of fellowships? Wasn't it just the most wonderful time to talk about things of the Lord? Well, it is such a great experience, but beloved, it's becoming one that is less and less prevalent in our society as we draw ever and more and more inward. Something that we need to rectify teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the fourth function is prayer. The plural devoting themselves from the beginning of chapter 40 or verse 42 shows that it's speaking of corporate prayer. This is why our Wednesday services are so important. We have a wonderful time in God's word, but it is a critical time of prayer, of lifting up the needs of our body, well, verses 43 and 45 carry our fifth element of comfort in interrelation. Look at verse 43 with me. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. We understand that there is this, this major movement of God. There is an awe that all are understanding. And it's taking place amongst them, amongst the believers. And that they are together. And then at the end of 44, it says they have all things in common. Here is the beginning of our fifth element of interrelation. And that element is care. It is care. They were caring for one another, taking care as anyone might have need, as verse 45 says. Having all things in common. What an amazing comfort comes in each of these. Well, verses 46 and 47 conclude our section where it says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity or simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number 
day by day those who were being saved. Just listen to that encouragement, beloved. Partaking in all these elements. I love the end of verse 46. Doing so together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They are beaming at the joy of Christ and the privilege they have of being together, ministering, serving, fellowshipping, breaking bread, praying, and hearing the teaching of the word. An attitude of comfort and peace is surrounding this. And it's resulting in praising God and bringing his favor. But how amazing is the ending of verse 47? And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This brings us each to consider our role in this important topic of the comfort of the church. How does the unity of the Trinity impact our understanding of our unity within the church? Do we consider God first and foremost in that important matter? Do we see the parallels between the Trinity and the church knowing that there must be perfect unity in the church? Do we understand the unity of the body and the function of the spiritual gifts? More so, do we practice those gifts when we're about the business of serving one another with our spiritual gifts, beloved, it gets our eyes off of ourselves and onto the needs of others. Are we practicing the relational components of the first church? Those five vital elements of word and fellowship and food, of prayer and care. The interrelational components they also get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the needs of those around us. And they all grow us in our spiritual walk so that we may have a walk that is worthy of the calling by which we've been called. My beloved church family, when we practice these things, the comfort of Christ and the comfort of the church will rule in our hearts and then we will know the peace of God that passes all understanding, which will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. May Christ be glorified in our lives and in our church as we obey his glorious plan.